2022, the United States Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, supposedly returning the question of abortion to the states and tying the fight for reproductive rights to the fight for democracy. This is Defending Democracy, a weekly podcast from Democracy Docket. We're your hosts. I'm Mark Elias. And I'm Paige Moskowitz. Let's get started. Joining us today is Sky Perryman, president and CEO of Democracy Forward. Welcome to Defending Democracy, Sky. You and I have known each other for a very long time. We've worked together, uh, and that is because you have now been had two stints at Democracy Forward, which is a great organization that you now run. What is Democracy Forward? We're an organization that uses the law, which is one of your favorite tools, Mark. Um, we use the law to build collective power um, and to advance a bold and vibrant democracy. And what that means is that we believe that people need to be able to redress their grievances and go to court when um, governments do things that disrupt their trust, that seek to undermine their wages, their ability to get a good job, their ability to have reproductive health care, which we'll talk about, any number of things that make up the conditions of democracy. You'll find us in court representing folks. And um, we also believe that people need to be able to make their voices heard in the court, even when they're not a party to a case, even when there is a case that's going to affect everybody, not just the two people on either side of the Vs. And so we do a lot of representation of communities, groups across a range of issues, making sure that people have representation in the third branch of government. Um, uh, so that's what we do. You are uh, unique in many respects because you have both a background in pro-democracy litigation. You also have a background in um, reproductive rights and reproductive rights litigation. And so in some ways, I think you were early to understand the connection between reproductive rights and democracy. And I think post Dobbs, people now like really get that. But can you just like tell me how you see Dobbs as, or the effects of Dobbs as a democracy issue and how abortion rights fits into an abortion rights litigation. And we're going to talk about some of the specific cases, but how that, how that fits into the broader democracy landscape. Yeah. I mean, let me tell you, a story. first I'll tell you on a personal note, as a kid that grew up in the middle of central Texas, there were always people well before now that were trying to prevent people from voting in my hometown. And there were also early efforts to spread misinformation about reproductive health care. And I realized as a pretty young person without a legal degree, without even a high school degree, that like these are the same groups, <laughs> even back, <laughs> even back in the even back in those days. And so that always really led me to, to be curious about both um you know, the relationship between the two, um, which of course we see throughout history. But we, we've always known, by the way, after Dobbs, um, it's been very clear and very publicized that the vast majority of people support um, reproductive health care, that they believe that these are personal decisions that shouldn't be made by politicians. That's clear. That's actually always been, there's all, that has always been the data. Um, now people are recognizing it and seeing it in more vivid ways in elections. In 2011, um, in the state of Mississippi, which is the state that produced the law that went up to the Supreme Court that resulted in the Dobbs decision. There were some far right groups from outside the state, not folks from Mississippi, who came in and influenced um, 
the um, state to put an initiative on their ballot where everyone was going to vote um, to insert personhood, this idea of personhood into um, the Mississippi Constitution in order to sidestep decades of legal precedent under um, Roe v. Wade and other cases that protected reproductive health care. And that ballot initiative in the state of Mississippi in 2011 massively failed. Hmm. And in that year, what didn't fail was some of the folks that got elected to the Mississippi legislature. And over the course of a few years, you start seeing not only anti-democracy, anti-voting legislation being pursued with greater vigor, but you also see anti-abortion legislation. And so the very law that was at issue in Dobbs that reached up to the Supreme Court to do exactly what people have wanted, special interests have wanted to do against the will of the people, which is to reverse our constitutional protections. That very law is something that when, when the question was put or a similar question was put on the ballot, it failed. <laughs> and so there had to be work through gerrymandering districts and through the work that you do, Mark, um, in order for these special interests to be able to get the law that they wanted which then ultimately was the vehicle that when um, the court's uh, power balance changed, um, reversed decades of, um, uh, of precedent. And of course, for folks that are born today that are women or that need reproductive health care, they have less rights than those um, that were born, for instance, when I was born. So it's um, so that so if that's that's kind of a story to get you to where we are, which is that we've always known that the vast majority of people want to go about their lives. They want to be able to pursue their happiness. They want to be able to pursue their well-being. That includes being able to access health care. It includes making personal decisions, medical decisions. That's something that people support. It's something that a very far right minority that doesn't represent the majority of people um, has used and will continue to use um, in order to be able to message, in order to be able to build their power. And that is directly linked, not only to reproductive health care, but to all of it. Yeah. And, you know, after Dobbs came out, uh, there was an immediate sort of scurry about what this means, not just in the practical day-to-day -day lives, uh, which is the most important thing, but you know, how would the judicial system, how would uh, pro-democracy, pro-choice organizations, how would the organizations on the other side respond legally? And we've seen a lot of different um, avenues of um, both, you know, protections and, and um, expansions, but also setbacks. But Democracy Forward took a, a, a route that I think has been both really, really important and successful, um, but also pretty novel, <laughs> which, uh, is which is litigation around the uh, abortion drug uh, mifepristone. So can you talk to the audience about kind of why that approach and like what the strategy was there and like how it's worked out? So, you know, first of all, it's important to, as you mentioned, I mean, we all know what Dobbs did to people's lives. It's important legally to understand sort of what Dobbs did and what it didn't do. I mean, Dobbs absolutely removed a critical constitutional protection on the basis of privacy. But what Dobbs didn't do is it didn't remove any other federal right that might exist to be able to obtain reproductive health care, 
And it also didn't, of course, a, a disrupt any state uh, establishing their own rights um, to reproductive health care. So in the wake of Dobbs, um, the question is sort of what is left on the table, right? What rights exist at the federal level that protect the right to abortion? Because there are. And um, making sure that the same right wing interests don't try to oversell what Dobbs does. And so in one example, the Department of Justice, as you know, brought a case in Idaho challenging a state abortion ban. We were supporting the emergency physicians in that case because Congress for decades has recognized the right of people to receive emergency care. That includes pregnant people. There's no exception. And if that care that you need to receive in an emergency room involves a pregnancy termination, a state under our constitution cannot obstruct that because our constitution says that federal law is the supreme law of the land. And when it conflicts with state law, the, fe- the state law has to give way. So that's one area um, that's going on where Democracy Forward is involved on behalf of physicians. This other area that you're mentioning with the medication abortion pill um, also relies on this notion of federal preemption or the idea that, that federal law takes precedence over state law when the two conflict. And we're representing the generic manufacturer of a medication that FDA approved on its label, FDA's approved label, um, for the termination of pregnancy that has been approved for over two decades. That approval and the way that Congress and the FDA have specifically regulated the category of drugs that mifepristone is in. Mifepristone is in a category of drugs that has some heightened restrictions um, and some heightened warnings. And so Congress, Congress itself, in addition to the FDA, has been very specific about how that category of drugs gets regulated. And so um, it's very clear that under our Constitution, if federal law takes precedent over state law, states cannot impose restrictions that would remove mifepristone from use because that is an FDA approved product and it's specifically regulated by FDA. And there's a number of states, West Virginia is one of them. There are a number of other ones that have passed laws in the wake of Dobbs that conflict with how FDA has um, regulated mifepristone. We are representing the manufacturer and challenging those laws um, on the basis of federal preemption because the manufacturer itself and people rely on the FDA to um, approve and to regulate mifepristone. And in a post-Dobbs world, (laughs) that's still the structure of our government. And that's still the structure of this regulation. And you can imagine the implications, Mark, if if in every state, um, the minute a state legislature didn't agree with some type of medical treatment or didn't agree with some way the FDA was regulating a drug, um, it could just pass laws to sort of make those drugs less available. You can imagine what that would mean for mifepristone. You could imagine what that would mean for other types of um, medications as well that are essential. You know, you mentioned what Dobbs did and what Dobbs didn't do. Um, and anti-abortion groups often would say, well, you know, uh, the Supreme Court will just return this to the states. Um, yet now you see they, in some states, they, they, they don't like the, that it's been returned to the states. Um, I'm curious, you know, you've studied the, the, the anti-abortion movement uh, as a lawyer for a long time. Um, what do you, what do you make of their, like, what's their strategy? Is it, a, is it a federal ban? Is it just to fight state by state battles? Is it to overturn 
the FDA's ability to authorize medicated abortions. I mean, it, it feels like they didn't really mean it when they said it would be returned to the states. Um, and they didn't, and they don't really mean it when they said they just didn't like, uh, you know, a constitutional right, because now they're attacking statutory provisions uh, that govern literally how drugs are approved. Like, what's the, what's the, what do you make of all that? Well, at a broad level, and this goes back to your first question, I mean, this is about our democracy and it's about our country. And what we know about the anti-abortion movement in this country is that it really um, began to take on political power and to take on the kinds of messaging that all of us have been very used to around pro-choice versus pro-lie. I mean, all of these sort of messages, unborn child, all the messages that you hear, those really started taking on um, a life of their own, actually um, in the wake of Brown versus Board of Education, and then later in the 60s and 70s, after Brown versus Board, there were immediate calls, immediate public calls to overturn it by this very far right um, uh, sort of contingent of the country that doesn't represent the majority of people, um, but has a lot of power. Right after Roe is decided, you have immediate calls, just like in Brown, to overturn that decision by the same group. By the way, they're the same group. You can line them up, <laughs> same groups. Um, and what we then saw was as society continued to become a bit more inclusive, it became less popular and polite for these groups to say that they, you know, really didn't support the vision that all people are created equal, didn't really believe that schools should all be integrated. And so they had to find another issue. And it's been well documented that that issue became the family values movement, quote unquote. Um, it's a, now we're using words like Christian nationalism or um, white Christian nationalism. You know, some of us that grew up in the heart of all of that kind of culture, that's existed for a long time. It's just had a bunch of different names. But that the anti-abortion movement really grew out of that. And it grew out of the same power base, the same groups that are supporting legal attacks, the Leonard Leo, you've talked about this, the constellation of groups, those same groups, guess what? They, they are not the groups that are on the side of voting rights, that are on the side of civil rights, that are on the side of reproductive rights. And so when you ask me things like, what is the strategy? The strategy is to undermine our democracy and to use whatever tools you can use. And so you can blame it on a constitutional interpretation by the Supreme Court. And the minute that um, the court says we're going to return this to the people. They don't want to return it to the people. Is I think the strategy is the strategy that you have highlighted before, which is a strategy to undermine a democracy that works for all people. And it has taken different forms over time and different issues. That is one of the reasons I'm really proud of the work that we do at Democracy Forward, because we work across the full range of issues that matter to people and communities because they are democracy issues. Yeah. And, you know, you started uh, the, this conversation by saying something that I, I want to explore. It turns out that that when the people hold, whether it is ballot initiative elections or in Wisconsin, where you had a state judicial election that turned on abortion, um, it turns out that uh, the the anti-abortion side is very unpopular. Um, and this seems to have taken a lot of people by surprise. So I find it interesting that you, it seems to have surprised you less <laughs> based on uh, that you, that these red states, Kansas and Missouri and, you know, that, 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 uh, that this is really another example of where these conservative forces want to exercise majority power 
right? It really is a very anti-democratic movement because, uh, you know, they don't command. And it sounds like they don't command even in red states, majority, uh, majority. And I'll, I'll just take that up a notch. I would say it's not even that they want to command a majority and they don't have a majority. The reason they want to call these issues polarizing, voting is not polarizing. Healthcare is not polarizing. Helping a friend that needs healthcare is not polarizing. The reason they want to call those things polarizing is when you call something polarizing, you could get maybe 50% of the power. Right. But we know that they don't even have that. And so it's so just, I, I think this is totally correct um, on the majority point, but also just they're also seeking to, with their messaging, they're seeking to capture more power than even they, you know, than even saying they're not even the majority. So. Yeah, it also it also sets up a structure of moral equivalency for the media, you know, not to bash the media here, but the media buys into the idea that it's a, that it's polarizing as a way to essentially dodge the moral responsibility for not standing up for democracy. But to, before we lose this this train of thought, there is a ray of 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 uh, of hope in Ohio. Republicans are attacking reproductive rights in that state. There's a ballot initiative that would ensure uh, reproductive rights in the state's constitution. And if you want to understand the lengths that Republicans and conservatives will go to undermine free and fair elections and uh, free and fair processes, you could, this is a case study. LaRose, the, sec the Secretary of State said, you know, we shouldn't have uh, 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 elections in August because they're low turnout then when they thought it would benefit them to have a uh, a low turnout election to try to block this uh, initiative by raising the threshold, they scheduled in August. They have screwed around with the ballot language. I mean, they've done everything they can to try to prevent the people of Ohio from voting on this, which they will this November. Um, what is your take on the attempts of lawmakers to simultaneously si try to silence the voters, change the rules? Uh, mislead the language <laughs> you know, like like is it just par for the course but it seems like they're they're like every step of the way here they're willing to do whatever it takes and do you think it'll be successful well first of all i'll say i'm really also grateful to your team for being on the front lines of those fights in ohio one of the reasons they have to do this is some of the language they don't want to they don't want to be bothered with the facts they don't want voters to understand that reproductive health care is not just about the termination of pregnancy or abortion or however you want to label it. It's also about contraception. It's about your um, ability to obtain fertility treatments and all that stuff they don't want the voters to see. I ultimately have confidence that um, we know the vast majority of people, including in places like Ohio, in, you know, including in places like Kansas, we saw these initiatives, you know, the other side of these initiatives, you know, lose in places like Mississippi years ago. So I think that the voters will um, vote this out. And that is, of course, what this, that's, of course, what this movement is very um, concerned about. And so they will pull out all the stops. Yeah. And it's no surprise that we see in Ohio, the same people who are opposing the the ballot initiative for reproductive rights are trying to prevent an anti-gerrymandering ballot initiative from getting on the ballot. And they're using almost the same tactics and it's of the course. same people. This is your point. It's the same people. It's the same people. And so you and I have known each other a long time and we've gotten to work together because things have overlapped. But now it's like, it's the same people. It's the same fight. And um, anybody that tells you that an attack on, you know, 
abortion isn't really about democracy or an attack on democracy isn't really about your ability to make a fair way. You know, all that. It's, it's the same fight and it's the same people. I am talking to the leader of Democracy Forward, one of the most effective organizations in the fight for democracy around the country, Sky Perryman, and we will be right back. Hey, everyone. Democracy Docket hit a really big milestone. Our newsletters now have more than 150,000 subscribers. As a thank you, we have an exclusive offer just for our listeners and subscribers. When you shop the Democracy Docket store, you can get 10% off your order of $25 or more all month long. Just use code THANKYOU10 at checkout. Shop at store.democracydocket.com. That link is also in the description of this episode. Just use code THANKYOU10. Again, that's code THANKYOU10 for 10% off your order today. I am back with Sky Perryman. Sky, before we move on, I, I can't let the moment go uh, without asking you about your views of the crazy situation in Texas involving this single judge division where there's like one judge <laughs> who seems who seems hell-bent on doing everything badly on every front possible. Can you just explain to people how it is that every ruling involving, you know, abortion and a whole bunch of other topics seems to wind up in this one place? And where is this place? Right. So, well, you're talking about Amarillo, Texas, with a judge called Judge um, Kazmierich. Now, there are some other districts in Texas that you've also litigated in and that we've been forced to litigate in at times that are problems there too. But, but Judge Kazmierich has really captured attention. And um, so it's a few things. And I know for vo- folks like us, where we think the courts are actually part of the solution um, here, um, this is really disturbing for people who are seeing their rights go away or their rights be threatened or resources have to be applied to deal with this um, because of a judge in Texas. Right. So start with how does every case seemingly wind up in Amarillo, Texas? Well, this goes back to, you know, what you talk about a lot, which is this constellation of right-wing groups. But to get into court, we know you have to have a party, a willing plaintiff, so to speak, that can come in and claim that they are harmed, usually by a national policy. So they, you know, they're not going after local ordinances is federal court, right? So it's- um, Right, they're not suing Texas, right? right. They're, they're not, not, suing, they're not Texas. suing Texas. They're not, this is not when people are, when people are listening to this, they're like, Amber, you know, they're not, they're not going on local stuff. It's like, you know, we do not like the Affordable Cares Act preventive healthcare provisions, which by the way, covers cancer screenings and contraception, a whole lot of stuff. So we are going to go somewhere where we can challenge it. And we've got to find somebody that can challenge it in this place. Um, and so they have developed a network of organizations and groups that have ties to places, sometimes false ties, but that sort of try to create the appearance of a tie to places where they have favorable um, judges. And then, of course, Matthew Kaczmarek himself, um, Judge Kaczmarek, was appointed by President Trump. President Biden has now appointed more of these federal judges than President Trump ever did. But what Trump did and what our Congress or what our Senate did was confirm judges who are incredibly extreme. And so, um, so what you have now are folks sitting on the bench like Kazmarek who do not um, operate with the same <laughs> um, basis of understanding of how our democracy functions or federal law functions. So this is a concerted effort to challenge any type of positive policy 
in um, these most extreme courts. And um, it's, it's concerning. There are a lot of folks doing good work to think about how, you know, the court system is by and large a creation of Congress, which means that lawmakers actually could um, think about reforms. And so there's a lot of those good conversations, but that is why it's because of the same constellation of groups trying everything they can to get someplace somewhere in the country where they can seek a foothold, even if the majority of the judiciary, even if the majority of legal scholars, the majority of people, you know, think these theories do not belong anywhere, that they're just crazy and bizarre and baseless, they there are some favorable forums for them right now. Look, one of the reforms that I think we need uh, in this country is, you know, the, the idea of judicial districts um, is that, you know, you want judges who hear cases in certain geographies. The idea of divisions within districts, right? So you have a judicial district that might be like, you know, cover you know, in in some states, 20 or 30 counties, right? They're fairly large and they have multiple judges. And then you have, you know, divisions within districts where, you know, because it's a large geography, the judge, one judge may sit in a courthouse in one part of the, 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 that, that region, another judge sits in another courthouse. But the idea that you can judge shop down to a single judge by yep. choosing the division within a district is just a reform that needs to be changed. And I mean, it's, the, the, it's the not divisions, a hard, it's not, that's not a huge, I mean, that's not a, it's, some, it's something that could easily be changed. Yeah. And it's honestly, it's not even prescribed by federal law. There are plenty of courts in the country that actually do random assignment within, within district. Like yep. you can't actually choose the division. You just, you know, you get whatever judge. As someone who is an experienced litigator now, you've litigated, you know, we've talked a lot about um, reproductive rights, but Democracy Forward does a ton of litigation. What do you think we need to do to make the courts more responsive to democracy? I'll say a few things. Um, One is on a broad level, because to me, it all comes back to this. The justification for courts in a democracy are to protect democratic institutions and to protect people and communities who have been left out either because of structural issues or because of, um, you know, anti-democracy laws or whatever. But that is the fundamental purpose in a government that is of and by and for the people. The fundamental purpose to allow this institution to have some power is if it is overwhelmingly promoting our democratic institutions and making sure that everybody for the rule of law for everybody, that everybody, the people that may be left out of those get protected. And so I think when you have a court, we can talk about the Supreme Court or we can talk about the single district courts, but when you start having courts, wherever they are at the state or federal level, that fundamentally veer from that enterprise, um, that is where there's a legitimacy crisis. And that is where we have to think about how the courts are structured and what reforms may be needed to address that crisis. The single district judge, one that you've mentioned is important. I think codes of ethics, you know, I don't see how you can hold a legal profession to codes of ethics that we um, are held to and not have, you know, high standards for folks that are on the bench. You know, you read the decision in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which was a decision in the early 1990s when the conservatives tried to overturn Roe v. Wade. It appeared Roe versus Wade was going to get overturned. And you saw Justice Kennedy and Justice uh, O'Connor essentially flip from what was their expected position to be to join Justice Souter in a, 
in a majority opinion that relied heavily on this I, this very idea you just laid out about you know they said that you know whatever one might think about Roe versus Wade it had become a settled part of the landscape and that the court's legitimacy this is a it's a it's a slightly different take than stare decisis right they talked about the court's legitimacy would suffer if if it was viewed that abortion rights were were taken away due to political changes in the court the supreme court's getting what it getting it's reaping what it's owed i mean like this was predicted this and was Mark, predicted. the fifth circuit the fifth circuit and i i'm not a you know there's lots of things going on in the fifth circuit but in dobbs the fifth circuit affirmed the lower court's decision striking down the law and then the court took this case yeah, didn't have it to. was designed. Didn't have to. It was designed by the same constellation of groups we've been talking to, whether they're in your work trying to prevent people from voting or in my work, try- same groups. And you have the court that that did that. So I mean, that's the other thing is even these courts, like the Fifth Circuit, has not has not been a friend to some of these issues um, for many years. If it was different a long time ago, but for many years, um, and um, it upheld the rule of law um, in its decision. And then the court took. Yeah. Sky Perriman, we're going to leave it there. Um, you do amazing work with Democracy Forward. I am proud to chair the board of Democracy Forward. You are an amazing tour de force there. Uh, the organization, for those of you who uh, want to learn more, you can visit um, it on the web. We will put a link to Democracy Forward uh, in the show notes. But thank you for being here. Thank you. And thanks for all you do. Thanks for listening to Defending Democracy. You can find all of the cases and articles we mentioned today linked in the show notes. If you enjoyed today's episode, leave us a review. To find out more and stay up to date on the latest voting rights and election news, visit democracydocket.com and make sure to subscribe to our daily and weekly newsletters. We'll see you next time. Today's episode was produced by Paige Moskowitz and Gabby Corporal. It was edited by Paige Moskowitz. Defending Democracy is a production of Democracy Docket, LLC.